0: Open up your Bibles, Luke chapter four, Luke chapter four. We've been in this series called Disciple. We've been learning about what it means to enter Jesus' school of living. And as a student saying, hey, Jesus, you teach me how to live. And we started the series in Psalm one. We talked about being about eliminating chaff and building trees. And then we went to John 10, and we talked about cultivating a listening posture, right? If you're gonna learn how to live from Jesus, then we're gonna have to learn how to listen to the voice of Jesus, the instructor, and we're going to learn how to slow down, quiet down and lean in. Remember that discussion out of John 10. And then last week we were in Matthew 6 and we talked about what does Jesus have to say about what, the way a disciple handles wealth and money and possessions. And today We're in Luke chapter four, and we're talking about this link between when you get linked up with Jesus, you're gonna get drawn to engage into the brokenness of the world around us. I put in your notes, if you haven't pulled out your notes yet, go ahead and do that. Fire up the app, and you can find them electronically as well. I put a copy of a book title that maybe looks familiar to those of you from the children's book era. Yes, uh, some kids in the room, which by the way, I'm calling today a PG-13 Sunday. So I I tried to give a heads up on the email side of things that for some reason you didn't get that. Um, If you've got a child sitting with you who's kind of under the age of middle school, kind of middle school and under category, this might be a good time for you to evaluate whether you want to stay engaged through this message because I believe some of the content, not just specifically what I'm teaching, but the interview that's going to come at the end of the message is really geared PG-13 and up. So I appreciate your flexibility, understanding, and sensitivity. It's important stuff, but we want to be able to speak candidly and openly about it, and I don't want you as parents to get caught off guard with it, all right? We're all on the same page, so this would be a good time. Get them connected. We've got plenty of age-appropriate rooms for the kiddos, and they'll have a great time. But today, we're talking about, as you move forward, there's this story in Alice in Wonderland. Remember that old classic children's book by Lewis Carroll? Here's a scene in Alice in Wonderland where the white witch is trying to give some instruction to Alice about what it means to believe in impossible things. Here's the dialogue, and I put it in your notes there. I can't believe that, said Alice. Can't you? The queen said in kind of a pitying tone. Try again. Draw a long breath and shut your eyes. Alice laughed. There's no use trying, she said. One can't believe impossible things. I dare say you haven't had much practice, said the queen. When I was your age, I always did it for half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I've believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. Why sometimes I've believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. You see, when you get linked up with Jesus, here's what you get thrust into. You get drawn into this reality that Jesus is really concerned with setting right everything in the world that's wrong. He prayed that way with his uh, prayer in Matthew chapter 6 when he was praying the Lord's prayer, a prayer you often repeat. Lord, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So the idea is, hey, set everything that's wrong down here. Set it right like it. Make up there, come down here. Jesus wants to bring light into the darkest and most difficult corridors of our world. That's part, Jesus, when you get linked up with him, here's what you're gonna be brought into. You're gonna be brought into a lifestyle of believing six impossible things before breakfast. Have you met this, Jesus? Luke chapter four is where he's trying to give him a little Alice in Wonderland teaching moment. So in Luke four, comes right on the heels of one of the most difficult 40-day periods of time in Jesus' life. Have you noticed this rhythm with following Jesus? Sometimes on the heels of the most challenging, straining, difficult, gut-wrenching seasons of life, right on the heels of that, become one of the most fruitful periods in your life and walk with him. Have you noticed this rhythm? For Jesus was this way. He just spent 40 days in the desert, 40 days in the wilderness, 40 days under a full court press from Satan. His emotional tank, spiritual tank, physical tank, mental tank were pushed to the limit. Some of you, that's a commentary on the beginning of 2018 for you where you feel like the gauges couldn't be much lower, you couldn't be more stretched in, you wonder how you're going to keep getting through what you're going through. That's Jesus right here as he's stepping into Luke chapter 4. He passes the test. He endures to the end. He comes to the end of his long month and a half And here we see the scene, Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. I want you to underline that in your Bibles. Do you know where the real fuel for sustaining strength and endurance is in the Christian life? It's not you and I trying really hard to endure. We got no shot of that. If this whole thing's dependent on what you and I bring to the table, whoo, It's going to struggle for any form of endurance and perseverance. But right there, right, he goes how in the power of the Spirit. Paul Paul said it to the church in Colossae. So Colossians chapter 1 says he labored in the energy of the Holy Spirit. So there's this power, there's this strength, there's this source beyond us through the Holy Spirit that sustains us and carries us when we know we can't keep going in our own strength. That's Jesus right here. He's going in the power of the Spirit right on the heels of one of the most difficult times in his earthly life. The power of the Spirit is carrying. He carried Jesus, it will carry us. When we get to the end of ourselves, this is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, How is it that in our times of weakness we can find such strength? Have you ever asked, How does that happen? Right here. The power of the Spirit, when we decrease, guess what increases? Christ in you power and presence of the Spirit in you. He's able to move through you in ways that are just sustaining and carrying, and then fruit is produced. And yet, you may be in your kind of most diminished state, physically, emotionally, mentally. You're in that place, and the Spirit is strong, and the Spirit is powerful. That's right here. And so Jesus is in that space. News about him spread throughout the whole countryside, he taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. Here's another thing you'll notice about Jesus. Where Jesus was hanging out, tends to be large crowds started gathering. Jesus was the kind of guy people wanted to be around. Now, it didn't mean they agreed with everything he was saying, but the way he went about things and the kinds of things he was talking about, people were intrigued, they were interested, they were drawn to listen and to try to figure this out. And then some ran away when they started piecing together what he was saying, but there was this picture of people were gathering around, they wanted to hear, And then he goes to Nazareth, verse 16, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue. Think of that like a local church, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. Now, you notice in your Bibles, verse 18 and 19, words in red, if you have that kind of translation. This is a quotation from Isaiah 61. These words were written 700 years before Jesus is standing in this synagogue in Nazareth. So 700 years before, Isaiah wrote these words. Jesus grabs that scroll, knows all about those words, unrolls it, because that's how they had their Bibles that day. The Bibles didn't look like this. They were rolled up scrolls. There was just one copy of Isaiah for that whole area. Jesus grabbed the copy of Isaiah, unrolled it to Isaiah 61, and then read these verses. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To release the oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Imagine that. And he began by saying to them, quote, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now that kind of took the church service to a whole other place, because for 700 years, the people of God have been reading that promise. For 700 years, they've been praying and groaning and moaning and waiting. For 700 years, they've been wondering, who's going to be that one? And Jesus knew very well that this was the moment he sees this opportunity. He grabs Isaiah 61, and he stands before them and says, your 700-year waiting is over. The Messiah has arrived. It's time for everyone to start believing six impossible things before breakfast. It starts right now. Impossible things like what? Recovery of sight for the blind, good news being preached to the poor, prisoners being released, the oppressed being set free. That stuff right there. Believe it before breakfast. I'm here. And now he adds to this. Can you imagine the ripple effect going on in that church? And they thought he was just the carpenter's son. You're like, were you just like sanding footstools and wood benches last week? Didn't we just get a set of cabinets from you? Hmm? And now he says, today, that scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Isaiah 61 ministry has come embodied in the person of Jesus. And now he's deploying a new form of ministry, saying you're gonna believe six impossible things before you get up every single day. And now he adds to it. So in John chapter 14, here's how Jesus, I put this in your notes as well, because Jesus is trying to prepare them for a day when he's not gonna be physically with them anymore. Have you had those kind of weeks in your life where you've been praying through something and you're just like, Jesus, could you just like show up in the passenger seat of my car here? Could you just clarify for me what I need to do with this meeting I'm about to step in? Could you just sit right here in this passenger seat and just tell me straight up how to handle this? Anybody been there? Or you're going through something, you're like, Jesus, I just need you to grab me right here, put your hands around my cheeks, grab like eye-to-eye contact and just tell me straight up, this is where we need to go, this is what we need to do, this is how we need to handle it. Do you realize that's how Peter and John and Mary and all those the disciples here, like that's how the believers in Nazareth and that synagogue, that's the kind of relationship they had with Jesus. Like it was really good that he was physically with them. Can you imagine how amazing it was just to be physically around Jesus? Well, listen to what Jesus says about this because he recognizes they're becoming quite attached to his physical presence with him and he's preparing them for a time when he's going to exit. Listen to what he says here. John 14, I tell you the truth. By the way, anytime Jesus says that in the scripture, you know what that's telling us? We need to sit up in our chairs a little bit straighter because there's been a lot of misunderstanding about what he's about to say. So we say, hey, I tell you the truth. Like, let me clarify what's been a little foggy, all right? I tell you the truth. Anyone, notice, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. Now, who's the anyone who has faith in me? That's Bible speak for disciple. That's what it means to be a disciple, you're a follower of Jesus. You place your faith in Christ. You're learning how to live Jesus' way. Disciple. Anyone who's a disciple is gonna be doing Luke 4, Isaiah 61 ministry. He will do even greater things than these. Are you kidding me? Because why? I am going to the Father. To which if you were listening then, if you were Peter or John or Mary, you'd be saying, "What? whoa, 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 wait a minute, Jesus. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You can't go anywhere. Because they're looking at the world around them, and they're going, the Romans are still wreaking havoc everywhere. This place is a mess. The church is off the rails. we got so much work that you can't leave. No way. Could you picture how tightly they must have wanted to hold on to Jesus physically? And what's Jesus saying? No, no, you don't understand. As good as it is that I'm here with you physically, it's going to be even better when I exit. What? I mean, that would just be, What? So follow it here. Jesus is saying, which we find out in Acts chapter one, he ascends to the heavens. Acts chapter two, he sends the Holy Spirit to be poured out on the believers. And he's calling that even greater than when he was physically with them. So as good as it was that Jesus was physically present with them, he's saying it's even better. It's his good to great. His great is when his spirit is poured out and he's able to inhabit his believers all across the planet. I want you to think of it this way, visually. Here's a map of current day, the spreading out of Jesus' followers around the world. So all those points of light, approximately 2 billion followers of Jesus in 190 nations today. So stay with me here. What Jesus is saying is, do you realize when he was physically on the earth, he could only be in the synagogue in Nazareth He couldn't simultaneously be in the synagogue in Capernaum when he was in the synagogue in Nazareth. Are you tracking with me? In a sense, Luke 4, Isaiah 61 ministry was one small blip of light right there in the Middle East. So over there in the Middle East, right in the center of Israel, there'd be one little dot of light, Isaiah 61. Jesus' ministry in Luke 4. He's in the synagogue. He's unrolling the scroll. One little drop of light right there. And that was great. That was glorious. But do you see what Jesus is saying now? He's saying, no, it's gonna be better when I ascend to the heavens and now look, look at what happens to the map because I'm gonna send my spirit and if you were believing six impossible things before breakfast there in that synagogue in Nazareth, now you've got two billion people in 190 nations believing six impossible things before breakfast and that is what he says is greater. As good as it was I was with you, it's even greater when I was absent from you. In a sense, do you see how Isaiah 61 ministry now is deployed and spread out all around the globe? That's why he, the tight, you are the light of the world. Now, he started with, he taught him, he's the light. But then when he deploys, right, Matthew chapter 5, he says, you're the light of the world. How? Because you have the repository of the Holy Spirit. It's not about your life being a light. It's Christ in you. That's the light. And now you're deployed. And that's how he says it's even greater things. Because when I exit, I'm going to be able to be simultaneously with you in Zionsville, Indiana, as I'm simultaneously with the believers right now in South Sudan, standing on the banks of a crocodile-infested river. Simultaneously by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's even greater. So one of our Isaiah 61 ministries as a church, like, Proclaiming sight to the blind, releasing prisoners, dealing with the oppressed, good news to the poor, like engaging with the brokenness of the world around us, which by the way, is just baseline as a local church. We often say around here, we're about three things, discipleship, missions, and next gen. Discipleship, helping people live everyday life with Jesus. Missions, helping all people everywhere do that. Engaging with brokenness around us. And then next gen start or as early as we possibly can start. One of the ministries that we got linked up with several years ago through Mary Shum's link, Carl and Lori Ralston, does that name ring a bell? Remember New Child Trafficking Ministry. In 2010, Carl and Lori Ralston came to an elders meeting. Tim Swearens was seated as an elder around the table. Carl and Lori began to share their story about how God had made it clear to them they were gonna give the rest of their life to stop one million children a year from being sold into trafficking. Tim Swearens was sitting at that table, and God pricked something in his heart there. He began a conversation with Tina, and in 2011, I think, right, Tim, 2011 was their first trip to Thailand and Cambodia as a couple. And they began to engage as a disciple of Jesus into this whole new arena of darkness and brokenness and saying, we gotta do something about this. Tim and Tina are both journalists for the Indianapolis Star. And as I sent out in my email this week to you, this past week, Tim's work, 16-month work, covering eight countries and five continents, his first of 10 articles was released in the USA Today network. Here's the headline from the newspaper. And if you haven't had a chance to click on that, I want to encourage you. You got it in your email inbox for the link. And it's the first of 10 articles. And what I know about Tim and Tina Swearins is they're disciples of Jesus. And they're living a pattern of this believing six impossible things before breakfast. Because God by the power of the Holy Spirit is inhabiting their lives and they're now in step with Luke 4, Isaiah 61 ministry. And Tim and Tina using their journalist skills are seeking to do something about releasing the prisoners and giving sight to the blind and doing something about the oppressed. And so I want you to join me in welcoming Tim Swearens to the stage. We're have a little conversation. So Tim and Tina have been around Eagle for many, many years. Served in all kinds of ministries, eldership, children's ministry, student ministry. And Tim, I can't imagine the week you must have had this week from the release point of the story. Was it Tuesday morning that it went on the USA? Tuesday morning was posted. Uh, amazing week. And, and Hold on, just a second. We'll get the mic here. Uh, keep keep talking. Chris, are we good? Hold on, well, we're, he's working on, anytime you see the tech guy's head go down like that, then you just, <laughs> there they are, he got oh, okay. it, he got yep, it. Yep, we're on, So Great. on Tuesday morning, the story went live, right? For Tuesday the US... morning,
1: story went live and it's just been a, a, a rush since then.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, you know, I often tell people that um, I was invited to step on a train. Um, I didn't build the train, I didn't schedule the train. I'm certainly not driving the train. God's been driving this train and it's just amazing how many Things opened up that I just, you know, beyond what I could have imagined, uh, and it's it's been a week like that. Uh, I checked this morning; uh, almost 500,000 people have read that first column. Um, I was getting uh, the the New York Times on Friday night tweeted out a link to the column. Wow! Uh, You can't arrange that. You can't pay for that. Um, I started getting Twitter Twitter followers from South Africa and Hong Kong and Singapore. Mm. Um, so God is just continuing to take this and reach people around the world. And it's, it's not about me or anything I've done. It's about God stepping in and saying, you know, people need to understand what's happening in our world and happening to more than one million children around the world. Mm. And, and this is important to know, it's happening across the United States. It's happening in Indiana. It's happening in suburban Indianapolis.
0: So let's talk about like the original objective when you stepped in. So it was a 16-month project. There was some funding and grant work from the uh, Journalist Association, right, that gave you a grant to do all this work. Eight countries, five continents, tons of airline miles. Yes. And your overall, just kind of reset for us, like your objective in stepping into the project is what? Uh,
1: Several, actually. And and those objectives actually began to change as the reporting uh, went along. Um, so one of the things I wanted to do very early on was to show what's happening around the world, but also show what's happening in the United States. Um, as Americans, we can be very focused on ourselves and not understand what's happening around the world. So I knew that as a journalist, people would pay more attention to what's happening in our country because that's the audience and, and there's close by. But I also wanted people to understand that the problem is actually, as bad as it is here, the problem is much worse around the world, and I wanted to be able to take people on this journey and show them that, Um, and so I'm really praying that people will stick with it. I know it's a tough read, and I promise by the time we get to the end, you're going to see hope, and that's how (laughs) this series ends, um, after uh, 16, 18 months of living and breathing this this work every day, mm. uh, I feel hopeful about what I've seen going on around the world. I, f- I feel hopeful about what's happening in this country and, and uh, people stepping up and leading here in, in mm. the, Indiana as well. Good.
0: We're going to need you to pour out a little bit of that hope on us by the end of this discussion. That'll be helpful. Yes. Give us some context just statistically. Now, I know statistics sometimes are hard for us to internalize. But I found some things you were sharing with me on the phone to just be really helpful to give, just kind of reset the scope of this child sex trafficking issue that we're dealing with.
1: Yes. So the United Nations um, in September of last year issued updated estimates. Um, So I'm going to start with a big, big, big number. More than 40 million people around the world were held in some form of modern day slavery in 2016. They said on any given day, 40 million people. Now wait a second,
0: we just got a 40 million.
1: 40 million people. That's that's larger than the population of California. 40 million people. Of that 40 million, 4.8 million are forced to work against their will in the sex trade, most of them women and girls. Hmm. Of that 4.8 million, at least 1 million the United, United Nations report said, we know there are more than one million children. It is such a hidden crime. We can't give a solid estimate, but we're, we know there are more than one million children around the world. Mm. That's the global perspective. Let's bring it to the United States. In 2016, uh, the Center for Court Innovation did a national survey on children, teenagers 13 to 17 years old, trapped in the sex trade in the United States. They estimated at least 9,000 and perhaps more than 10,000 13 to 17-year-olds in the United States. Sad news, bad news is, under the age of 13, we know that there are several hundred each year. I did a column uh, last fall. I was talking to local people working on this issue. They had four four 12-year-old girls here in central Indiana who were identified were being trafficked around the Indianapolis area uh, in at about a six-week span. So that, those 12-year-olds would not have been included in that national survey because they were too young. Bringing it even closer to home, in 2016, nine children were rescued in Hamilton County. The youngest was 11 years old.
0: So lest we think this is something that's just happening way out there it is
1: happening here thankfully there's some great christian organizations Mm. who are working on this problem here in indiana
0: so how about a story tim because you've obviously had so many like up front you've had a front row seat to i'm guessing the kinds of things that the rest of your life are never going to forget yes i mean probably in the category of some of the most difficult and stretching you know front row seat, eyes on, you've gone to some places. We've got a few photos too, so if you want to, Alicia, maybe you can just put up a slide if there's any kind of connection with some of the images uh, that Tim gave us from some of his time, and maybe just a story that, that puts some handles on the degree of darkness of this issue.
1: Yes, so uh, a year ago, um, well, this, this young boy lives in a in a village, a very, very poor village in Bolivia, and um one of the issues in Bolivia is that uh, child labor is legalized. Twelve-year-olds can work outside the home full-time. Uh, prostitution is also legal in Bolivia. So you get uh, pretty young children here being exploited. Um, I happened to come across him in a, in a village, and he posed for me, and it was just a nice photo. Wow. But but one of the things I, I will—there are so many things I won't forget, but let me share just one quick story that's both— uh, discouraging and hopeful uh, at the same time. So um, Tina and I went, uh, had a tour of the Kawangaweri slum in Nairobi. I'll uh, give you a little bit of perspective. Uh, last census, more than 130,000 people lived in that slum. Very, very, very poor conditions.
2: Mm.
1: Um, we were going there because there are lots of children who live on the streets. Thousands of children who live on the streets of Kawangaweri. Um, And our guides took us to a 30-year-old woman who calls herself Happy. Mm. Happy's lived half of her life on the streets. She lived as a child on the streets. She now has her own home. Uh, Most of you have a closet in your house that's bigger than her home.
2: Mm.
1: Uh, Dirt floor, no running water, no electricity. Um, And she's raising her family there. Happy has five children. Mm. Two of them are still with her. And Happy's working in the sex trade.
2: There's, there's a
1: photo of Happy and her children in Kowongareri. Uh, you can't see it in the photo, but behind her, the words judge not that are painted on the outside of her home. Hmm. That's hard. It's hard to go into Happy's, sit in Happy's home and, and hear her talk about her life. As I said, she has five children. Her three older children are living in a Remember New Home now hmm. because they were considered, and obviously so, at very high risk. And we were told that her two other children, once they're a little bit older, will probably go into a Remember New Home as well. Wow. I'll never forget that. I'll never forget walking, just walking to Happy's home. Our guides took us through a heroin alley, and Tina and I were sworn by addicts who, who surrounded us and handed out syringes to us. They were asking if we wanted to take syringes. They were asking us for money. And our guides took us through that because they wanted us to understand this is daily life in this area, and this is daily life for Happy and her family.
0: And so when you say a remember new home, maybe give context again for everyone here. What does that mean? When you say they're part of a Remember New home. Yes.
1: so Remember New focuses on prevention. They uh, identify at-risk children and provide a safe place and education, health care for these kids. And this is where these children are coming from, is places like this, not just in Kenya, but Cambodia and Thailand and many other places.
0: So I think we got some more picks. Alicia, you want to flip to the next slide? You want to give any commentary on what we see here?
1: Yeah, so there's there's both uh, some... um, desperation and hope in those three photos. I'll start with the bicycle at the top. So I was at a uh, shelter for child trafficking survivors. These are children who had been trafficked and rescued. Um, And that photo was taken in Tijuana, Mexico. When I got there, uh, the Alma, uh, uh, the woman who started this home, asked the girls to line up and introduce themselves um, to Uh, Tell me their ages and what they wanted to be when they grew up. And they went down the line. And the very last girl looked up at me and she said she wanted to become a veterinarian and that she was six years old. Um, Meeting a six-year-old sex trafficking survivor is difficult. That sticks with you. But the thing that really broke my heart was that photo of her bicycle And if you notice, it has a pink heart on the handlebars, and it has pink training wheels on the back. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the column that's going to post on Tuesday, um, with the headline "The Child Trafficking Survivor Who Needs Training Wheels." Mm -hmm. Below that, you'll see some flip-flops. Took that photo in Pattaya, Thailand. Um, That was about a month after I was in Tijuana. And uh, that photo was taken outside a home for child trafficking survivors. Ten girls living in that home. And you can see by those flip-flops, it gives you an idea of the ages. Mm. Those are Hello Kitty and Barbie flip-flops. Ten girls living in the home. Again, the youngest in the home is six years old. Um, The the oldest girls in the home were eleven. Oldest. Oldest were eleven. So ten girls, ages six to eleven, all child trafficking survivors in Pattaya, Thailand. Mm. Now let's go on to some hope. Yeah. The two little girls on the left are in a village in Kenya, a Maasai village. And uh, when we were there uh, last year, we pulled up to the village out in the Great Rift Valley's very arid place up in the hills. And the women of the village greeted us with song and a dance. And we were there because the women in that village have taken a stand. Um, one of the big issues for many millions of girls around the world um, is what's called uh, female genital mutilation and forced early marriage. And in the Maasai culture, that's, those are traditions that have been around for decades, if not centuries. But the women in that village, led by the wife of the pastor who lives in the village, said, not in our village, not to our girls. We're going to take a stand against FGM and forced early marriage. And it came at a price because it is a tradition. Mm. And there were men in the village who said, all right, if you're going to take this stand, we're going to withdraw our financial support. It was a very, very courageous stand that these women took to protect their daughters because in a poor, agriculturally-oriented village, um, having a daughter marry is a way for a family to, I'm gonna be blunt here, to get rid of a financial burden. It's also a way for a family to be financially rewarded because what happens when uh, there's a bride price It can be in money, but it also can be in livestock. Hmm. And uh, Monica Nugata, who works in a Remember New Home, remarkable woman, uh, told us about seeing in her, she's a Maasai, seeing when she was growing up that a family would suddenly have uh, a bunch more cattle, like overnight, Hmm. and everybody knew they sold off a daughter. Hmm. In this village, the moms were saying no, and they were saying no to protect those two little girls
0: So Tim, when we immerse ourselves, kind of through your articles and stories like this, we all kind of take a step back and it just seems so overwhelming. Like what can we do to practically begin to make some change? I think there's a collective, we'd all like this to be a non-reality in our world. Absolutely. And we think Jesus really would want this to be a non-reality in the world. We think the church ought to be at the forefront. And I think you had an eyewitness to that, right? Some of the Rays of hope in some of the darkest settings you said were followers of Jesus.
1: Yes, absolutely. So, so what I saw in going in some really dark places, um, you know, Jesus said that um, the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. And I, I saw that over and over again. Hmm. Uh, Christians going into hellish places and making a difference in the lives of children and, and women. Uh, and I saw that around the world. One quick story, Um, we went into a a brothel in Mumbai, uh, just a horrific place, and uh, we met a five-year-old boy who was living there with uh, his father who is a pimp and his mom who's working in the brothel. Sweet little kid, told us he wants to grow up to be a police officer. But the people who let us in there are social workers, they're Christians, and they were going in to try to get the child out and get him into a boarding school. Mm. But they were also going in, and we followed them through this brothel, they were also going in to minister to the women mm. who are trapped there, and in many cases have been trafficked and mm. severely abused for years. Nobody else is doing that but Christians. Mm. And I saw that over and over and over again. Uh, when we are in Bolivia, uh, Christians going into our Arroyo villages, and uh, so often, people who are discriminated against because of ethnic or racial uh, or religious uh, discrimination, it's Christians who are going into those places to, uh, to serve and to say, you know, you are loved, you are special, you are valuable. Mm. Um, and uh, I saw that over and over and over again. Mm. Um, you know, the, the people who were going to Happy back in Kenya... There were Christians who were going uh, to her and saying, we were there. I mean, the, the, the three men who led us through were former heroin addicts, wow. who, who were heroin addicts in Kawangawari. Now they're working in ministry to try and help others who are struggling with those same issues. So I saw that over and over again, mm-hmm. that Christians around the world are providing hope for people who are very, what seem to be hopeless situations. What can we do? Well, I'm not here to tell you about, to to support any one organization because there are a lot of good ones. You hear a lot about Remember New, and I would certainly vouch for that. But there are lots of good organizations that are doing work around the world. There are good organizations that are doing work here in Indiana. Uh, There are definitely ways that you can get involved on this on a local level. Um, And it's, again, it's happening here. Uh, One of those ministries, Ascent 121, provides residential care for uh, girls who've been trafficked here in Indiana, they served more than a hundred girls uh, from Indiana last year uh, There are, I, and again there are other organizations that are doing great work So there are ways you can get involved and make a difference I'm going to challenge the men in the room here um, There are probably a couple hundred men in this room The reality is that the vast majority of buyers are men I set out on this project to shine a light on the demand side, because I felt like, and what I was told by Carl Ralston and others, was the demand side is not getting enough attention. Hmm. And I, that's absolutely true. If you read the First Day article, it's primarily focused on demand, hmm. and the fact that buyers are not held accountable for their actions. A Couple hundred men in this room, statistically speaking, the, the good news is the vast majority of men will not buy sex in their lifetime. But in the United States, about 15 to 20% of men will. So 200 men, 30 to 40 men will purchase sex at some point in their lifetime. And you say, okay, statistically, I'm not in that, right? I wouldn't do that. Good. How many of you use pornography? I want you to think about that. I interviewed a 17-year-old survivor here in Indiana who was exploited when she was 15. 150 men bought her in one month. And I sat down, it's one of those things you never forget, sat down with her and she said, the smile on our face is fake, no girl wants that. That's true for children who are being trafficked, it's also true for those who are being exploited in pornography, and we have a huge problem with pornography in our culture, mm. it's, it's just accepted. Mm. So often in the church, we talk about using pornography because of what it does to us. Mm. It hurts my witness, it affects my relationships, it's not honoring to God, all those things are true. What we don't often talk about is what we're doing to the victims by supporting an industry That exploits them. And you say, well, wait a minute, I don't pay for that pornography online. Well, yeah, you are, because they're making money off each click. That's how the digital world works, okay? So you may say, I never give my money to exploit anybody. If you're viewing pornography online, sad to say, you are. Remember Happy's what she had on on the outside of her house, Judge Not? I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to throw stones. I just want you to think about it, okay? Mm -hmm. And, and when you ask, what can I do? That is one thing, mm. important thing, all of us as men can do mm. to help stop this.
0: Well, Tim, I know on behalf of the whole congregation, we're grateful that the Lord has deployed your discipleship you. in an arena, which I know is not an easy kind of uh, portion and cup to carry through this, but we're grateful for your willingness to carry it. We want you to know we stand with you. We're committed to Read through the articles, even when they're really tough to read, and I think all of us prayerfully asking the question, Lord, what would you have me to do to move out Isaiah sixty-one ministry? So let's give a round of applause to Tim and thank him for. Thank you. you. Worship team, why don't you guys come on up? We got we're going to wrap up with a video and a song here, and to give a little context to our video, I started off the message with. What does it mean to link up with Jesus as a disciple means you're going to be drawn in to the brokenness, lostness, and darkness of the world around you. That Tim, in his own accord, probably would have never envisioned the trajectory of his life going this way, but Jesus in Tim is what you're seeing carried out this way in all of us in some capacities, moving out into what's wrong in the world and joining Jesus in doing what he said in Luke 4. Proclaiming good news to the poor and setting captives free and releasing the oppressed. Well, we had a team just get back from Kenya. Tim and Tina were a part of a trip to Kenya a few years ago. It was a significant part of their journey. And you're going to see some video clips from a team's experience over there. And particularly, we gave monies here for a van to be purchased. Do you remember that story? So Elizabeth is the house mom, and you're gonna see a scene of what happens when she sees the van for the first time because the Eagle team got to present it to her. Well, last night, Elizabeth sent Eagle Church a note, and I wanna read a few sections from it. She wanted you to hear this from her, and this is the Kenyan house mom. She says, dear, loving family, people come into our life disguised as angels, and sometimes angels come into our life disguised as people. It is possible to see God anywhere. All it takes is open eyes and ears and the willingness to see miracles. They are everywhere. God, as available as we are, having friends that inspire us. To us, you're like an angel sent by God from above to cleanse our souls of sadness and fill it with love. You're an inspiration and we want to thank you. For without you, we don't know what today would have been like. You've changed our life around and turned our frown upside down. You showed us the way so that we will never stray. For this, we want to thank you again for staying close by and not being our friend, but being our family, being a part of us. I don't know that we'll ever be able to fully, you'll fully understand how much you've touched our lives and made us who we are. I don't think you could ever know how truly special you are. Even on the darkest nights, you're a brightest star. And goes on to quote like um, 1 Corinthians 13 about love is patient and kind and love, love never fails. It says, she says in closing, your love has never failed us. God's love never fails us. We appreciate you. We can't express enough thanks to you. We love you. And then she says, thank you for starting each day with a great heart, the kind of heart that lets love lead with love from all your Kenyan family, Elizabeth.